words on water. Welcome to Take It From The Top, a podcast series where notable leaders in the water sector share words of wisdom to help you navigate your way through the maze of challenges you face today. I'm Tom Kunitz, your host, and my guest today is former WEF president, Matt Bond. Matt, welcome to Take It From The Top. Uh, thanks. It's nice to be here in a new year and out of 2020, so look forward to this. Thanks. <laughs> I think many people share that sentiment, Matt. I also know many people know Matt from uh, one of his many, many activities in service to WEF as a past member of the Board of Trustees or his services on the Awards and Recognition Committee, maybe one of his exciting performances in the brass section at Jammin' for Water. But Matt is, <laughs> Matt is currently the Deputy Director of Engineering for KC Water, the public utility in Kansas City, Missouri. So Matt, it's now been about 10, 11 months since the coronavirus pandemic broke out in this country. And I expect by now, Casey Water has adjusted to new working procedures. You are in charge of delivering capital improvement projects for Casey Water. How or have you been able to maintain design and construction projects through the pandemic? And if so, how are you managing this? So, Tom, there's been some uh, adjustments to our normal processes just to keep projects and construction going. So uh, we still have most of our engineering project managers working from home. And I think the mayor is going to extend the stay at home uh, guidance for another three or four months. So uh, we've really gotten to use uh, communications tools such as uh, Microsoft Teams to communicate frequently uh, on our projects and and actually to do check-ins on a, on a weekly basis with all those project managers working from, from home. And another adjustment, uh, you know, we uh, had a project where we had to have a manufacturer check out uh, some big sluice gates on an overflow uh, control project. And uh, turns out the manufacturer couldn't get out there. So uh, they FaceTimed that manufacturer's rep in. And so we're finding out that people don't necessarily have to be physically present all the time to get some of our critical uh, inspections and that type of things done. Um, another example of creative flexibility, uh, we had a, a major project last year that's going through procurement. It's our biosolids thermal hydrolysis project. And uh, we're right in the middle of our procurement for that down to three shortlisted contractors. And then the pandemic hit. Uh, we were using DBIA best practices of confidential meetings with each of those proposers to get uh, their good ideas. We transitioned those meetings over after the pandemic hit to really talk about some of the risk items that they saw in a major project like this, because we wanted to make sure that we still got a good price for the, for the work. And uh, in those conversations, I think we went into it assuming that the contractors would be uh, concerned about uh, physical separation on the work sites and getting work done in the field safely. It turns out really they were more worried about supply chain issues. So what happens if they can't get a critical piece of equipment out because the manufacturing facility in the UK or wherever in the world is closed? So, so we had conversations about that and we actually changed our contract documents by addendum to 
uh, take on some of the risk for supply chain disruptions. And it, uh, it, it worked out uh, extremely well. Our council uh, just approved the winning contract uh, for that project at $140 million with contingencies. And we really thought it was going to be $150 million or more. So it, uh, it worked out well. So, so on the plus side, I see that some of these adjustments are going to continue after the pandemic. Uh, we're going to continue to use collaborative project deliveries, such as design build, so we can identify those uh, uh, risks and get a best value for our ratepayers. And then working with our design and construction partners using these newer communications methods just to get, uh, get our critical work done. Well, that, that's great, Matt. Kudos to you and your, and your team there for being creative and, and adjusting and adapting to, to the conditions that were thrown at us. They say necessity is the mother of invention. And I think you've definitely uh, displayed that. And it also reminds me of something I had read recently uh, in an article that you talk about different ages. You know, we were in the, the space age and the information age and some saying we are now in the age of adaptability. Yep. <laughs> and I think you're demonstrating that right now, yep. now that, that the KC water is is uh, uh, right up there in uh, handling the age of adaptability. So Matt, the, I'm gonna say probably the second big concern on everybody's mind after number one concern being the health of ourselves, our family, our friends, and so on. Probably the second big concern is the health of the economy. And since March, for example, about 58 million people in this country have filed for unemployment benefits. Unemployment rate is double what it was just before the pandemic. And in Missouri alone, where you live, about 28% of the workforce have filed for unemployment. Uh, I mean, is currently unemployed. So we have this paradox. On the one hand, you want to keep capital works projects going because that's jobs, right? That, that feeds the economy. On the other hand, you need the money to pay for those projects. And where's that money come from? It comes from your ratepayers. And the ratepayers, you know, some of them don't even have jobs and can't even pay their own rent. So how has KC Water tried to navigate this? This seems like an impossible dilemma. Of course, it's uh, not been easy. Uh, prior to the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we had planned to raise our uh, wastewater uh, rates uh, to keep up with inflation and to meet the consent decree requirements that we have. And uh, that action was taken in April of last year to go into effect uh, May 1st, beginning of our fiscal year. And uh, the council still has not allowed us to raise our rates. So, you know, this does appear to be good news for the short term for the ratepayers. But, you know, what about the work that we need to get done? Right, right. Uh, prior to the coronavirus, we were completing negotiations on our consent decree modification with EPA. And because of the current economic conditions, we're actually deferring and got uh, acquiescence to defer some of those consent decree projects the ones especially that had less impact on overflow reductions in the next three to five years. But this is really only deferring the inevitable. Someday, someday we're going to have to pay up. So in fact, uh, in our negotiations with the EPA on the consent decree, we were able to apply a lot of the principles on affordability that uh, were established in the 2019 WEF AWWA NACWA report on affordability and guidance that was provided to the EPA. So uh, a lot of it is as long as you've got, uh, you know, good consulting help, good financial help, uh, a lot of it's fairly obvious about doing good uh, rate forecasting and, and that type of thing. But uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, made a compelling case locally that our wastewater rate increases were not sustainable for our rate payers and using that guidance was very helpful in those conversations. And then the other thing that we found is like many urban areas, the distribution of income is not 
a normal bell curve or even level, but really we're seeing that the income levels are distributed at the high and low ends of the income spectrum. And that's a lot of the conversations we had as we were developing that guidance as well. And it's, it's the same thing here in Kansas City. So you know, actually the lowest quintile or bottom 20% of our customers pay on average 15% of their income on their combined water bill. You know, we're grateful that EPA took much of our input into the draft guidance they released in September, and they're listening to the consent decree negotiations. So hopefully that uh, that guidance will be approved uh, early this year. And I know that uh, the entire sector is working to, to hopefully get that done. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things here, uh, Matt, that I want to touch on that you talked about. One is, is a big shout out that uh, to the people at, at WEF, to the volunteers and the staff at WEF that put together that uh, the principles on affordability, that, that uh, document you referenced that was done jointly with AWWA and NACWA. I think that was tremendous help to the EPA. The feedback that I heard personally from some of the folks at the EPA was this is kind of stuff that we need, we, you know, because we need concrete information and evidence to, to build our decisions upon. So, uh, you know, I want to give a shout out to that, that you referenced. The second thing is, I want to go back to something you just said here. If I heard you right, you said that the bottom 20% of your customers, that's one fifth of your customers, pay on average of about 15, 1.5% of their income on their combined water bill. It, it, that's amazing. Is that, is that for real? Yeah, yeah. You know, as an engineer, it's hard for me to come up with a hard and fast number like that because there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. We have to make sure, assumptions sure. on the household size, how many uh, people live in each of our customers' homes. But uh, the range that we calculated was 12 to 16 percent of the median household income of that lowest quintile is being spent on water wastewater uh, combined bills. So. So yeah, fifteen percent's a pretty good number, and that uh, when I calculated it, it was uh, it was eye opening for me as well. Doesn't that just uh, I mean shock you, or or uh, I mean it's stunning to me that 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 people are spending that much uh, of their income on on a necessity of water and, and sanitation. Yeah, it, it does, and uh, you know I you know really I think it's it's almost criminal that we have uh, federal low income support for other utilities such as you know, electricity, when you can live for a day or more without electricity, but not without water. So uh, fortunately there's, there's mounting advocacy work that's coming together through NACWA and WEF to capitalize on these messages, as well as possible water infrastructure stimulus funding as we transitioned uh, into the new presidential administration. And now to be clear, Matt, your statistics that you gave us, your affordability statistics, that's just for Kansas City. And you did a lot of work to, to calculate that. But we know anecdotally and with real information that utilities, many utilities across the country are facing the same thing. Okay, they're all facing these similar hardships. And they have ratepayers at the lower end of the income spectrum facing similar odds just stacked against them. So I'm gonna put you on the spot here, Matt. What's the solution? Well, obviously, it's not simple, and uh, it's really hard to solve at just the local utility level. So we need to keep pushing for good federal, state, and local policies. Pandemic has required us to take on many short-term measures, like suspending water shutoffs as our communities struggle with competing priorities and reduced income. You know, as we see light at the end of the tunnel for a vaccine, we now, I think, have a unique opportunity to drive the discussions in the public forum that our water utility services that were proven day in and day out as essential during the pandemic must be kept operational. Water infrastructure is paramount to keeping good health. 
Just consider the simplest coronavirus defense, which is hand washing. This requires clean water. So Congress just passed the COVID Consolidated Appropriations Act, and it was a bit of a surprise to us that it actually includes over $600 million of support directly to water utilities for low-income water and wastewater rate payers. So this is a very good start. So we must continue to drive the understanding that while we have come to take water services for granted, they cannot be provided for free. We need to continue to keep our critical water infrastructure systems operational. There's a national effort to continue to allow water shutoffs that must come with low-income customer support like that that Congress just passed so that customers can, can pay their bills and our fellow citizens don't dig themselves into a deeper hole with their other mounting debt because water is not the only thing they have to pay for. Right, right. So like the EPA guidance that we're trying to get through, uh, we also need to emphasize that it's not just drinking water, but all water, water, wastewater, and stormwater systems that must be maintained for our economy, public health, and safety. Very well said, Matt. And as you pointed out, it's all water that is important. And, uh, you know, if you don't look at the stormwater, we have localized flooding. And of course, uh, we all know about wastewater and its importance to um, public health there. So very well uh, stated there, Matt. Uh, we would love to keep on talking to you about these points, but I want to switch gears because you, you, you cover so many things. You're an amazing person here. So I want to get as much as I can out of you in the few minutes that we have. So I want to switch gears now and talk about sustainability, which I know is another one of your big passion areas. And it's also a big passion of Kansas City leadership. And they have made it a point that they're very serious about their commitment to the environment and about building a sustainable, livable city. People who know Kansas City know Kansas City is famous for its fountains. But more recently, Kansas City is getting to be known as a very livable green city. There's a commitment by the city leaders towards uh, making it a bicycle-friendly city. You have a downtown bike loop, and there's this big project in, in the works, the Paseo Bikeway uh, Project. And so you're being known for your greenscapes and rain gardens. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Casey Waters' work in green infrastructure. Yeah, it's exciting times here uh, with our council. Uh, we have a lot of momentum around green infrastructure. So, uh, you know, the politicians are actually, you know, seeing the value in green infrastructure solutions and in almost every ordinance, even a water main replacement, uh, they ask us, uh, did you consider green infrastructure? So, so we've got a good political foundation and, you know, I think they realize that it provides more of a direct benefit to citizens at the surface than buried infrastructure does. And uh, so, you know, we just get asked about it all the time. So uh, one of our uh, overload control program or middle uh, Blue River Marlboro green infrastructure pilot project, uh, which was at uh, four sites really helped us to learn how to inform our local residents what to expect as we also learn many technical lessons. So, you know, kind of like asset management, uh, I think a lot of people have differing feelings as to what green infrastructure might look like. And it doesn't look like a manicured lawn. It looks a lot different. You need to make sure you, you understand those expectations and help shape them. So we also just celebrated another unique green infrastructure project in our urban West Bottoms uh, with a permeable paved uh, parking lot and a major bioretention facility. So adapting it into uh, an urban setting was, was uh, really fun and, and challenging. So so what we're trying to do is try to turn around this basic green mindset of the politicians that we have and turn it into a more mature understanding of sustainable infrastructure. So 
you know, it's providing a great foundation, but we really need to be talking about more, uh, you know, more aspects of sustainability. So uh, our proposed consent decree modifications that we're working on with EPA actually will provide hundreds more of greened acres with uh, even larger multi-department green infrastructure. So a lot of our other departments, parks, public works are, are getting involved in helping to shape uh, the larger uh, projects. So currently looking at projects uh, adjacent to the Country Club Plaza and then a large project uh, here uh, just a couple miles west of our office. So uh, with through, uh, through uh, Daniel Morgan Boone Park. So exciting times. It's clearly, Kansas City is, is setting the, the example, is, is leading by example, you know, for the rest of the country. And I do encourage folks, once we're able to get out and travel more safely, is to get down to Kansas City and to, to, to see firsthand the things that uh, they are doing with sustainability and green infrastructure, because I think you could learn a lot and learn a lot from the lessons learned from, from Kansas City. And one of the things you said there, Matt, is that uh, with the green infrastructure, one of the things that the leadership has learned is that green infra infrastructure provides multiple benefits more than, like you said, than just a buried pipe in the ground. Uh, it not only provides that uh, that stormwater retention, but you also have reduced flooding. You have water filtration, right? So cleaning the water, biodiversity, insects, uh, the aesthetics. So there's multiple benefits from one project. Yep, that's, that's true. All those are true. Uh, the other thing is, is that it drives jobs. So not only for the construction, but... Uh, you know, green infrastructure has provided a new type of entry-level jobs uh, for the city for the long-term maintenance of that green infrastructure. So uh, from my engineering mindset, you know, we really need to keep these systems fully operational to keep that rainwater out of the combined system, live up to our commitments to the EPA. So we need to plan the operations and maintenance of the, you know, of the plantings and everything else, just like we do our sewers, plants, and pump stations. So I'm proud that KC Water was one of the founding partner utilities in WEF's National Green Infrastructure Certification Program. This program maintains a set of national standards for training and workforce development for this unique skill set of maintaining living plants and the associated drainage systems. So we've already trained over 50 people uh, through the NGICP and plan to open up these classes to share with other agencies uh, and utilities in the metropolitan Kansas City area. So we know that WEF is working for a long-term transition of the NGICP program, and we look forward to continuing to support it with our financial, uh, technical, and human resources. I, I just want to highlight here again, you said 50 people, five zero people from uh, associated with KC Water have been trained in this uh, green infrastructure maintenance, which is which is just tremendous. Again, that's correct. Exactly. That's that's contractors, design professionals. We're actually turning uh, you know a couple of folks into uh, full time employees of the city from a contractor. So, boy, so you you know you're really like you said putting your uh, putting your money where your mouth is and saying that this is jobs. And you you clearly these are jobs. Fifty people now have jobs because of this green infrastructure. And you you know you mentioned and very rightly so, green infrastructure needs to be maintained. I once heard it described that says. Look, green infrastructure is a technology. It's just like uh, it's just like a clarifier or or activated sludge. It's a technology. It happens to be a living technology. That's correct. You know, and as a result, it has its own unique uh, way of design and and maintenance for it. And, and Matt, if I can continue on this path, talking about sustainability, because another example of Kansas City's commitment to sustainability is that you actually have an ordinance that was passed not long ago that requires public works projects to document the sustainability of the projects 
using the Envision program. And just, I want to spell this out because we are, you know, we're, we're on the air here, but it's E-N-V-I-S-I-O-N, Envision that I'm saying. And, and this program, it helps provide guidance on sustainable practices when you're dealing with infrastructure. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit, what is the Envision program and how does KC Water apply it to your projects? So uh, Envision is a framework developed by the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure that documents sustainability in the infrastructure field, uh, much like uh, LEED does in the buildings industry. So it's just another way to look at sustainability. So uh, the city did adopt that ordinance in 2014 to use Envision. And uh, in fact, uh, the middle of Blue River Green Infrastructure Project uh, that I talked about before achieved platinum certification in 2016. Uh, I've been here about three and a half years at, uh, at KC Water. And in my initial observations though, it seemed to me that we had stagnated a bit showing value with Envision. Sometimes we just talked about it, it was in the contracts and we we're not really having meaningful sustainability discussions, especially you get to some of the more routine projects such as a pipeline replacement, uh, a rehabilitation project, uh, that type of thing. So uh, Envision recently upgraded to a significantly upgraded enhanced version three. So because we wanted to go ahead and make that switch to that new version, uh, we took the opportunity to really take a holistic look at uh, how we applied Envision. Uh, we trained more of our staff and uh, we also engaged our smart sewer program consultant to create modified guidance around that version three. So when you look at the Envision credits uh, to, to measure sustainability, what they look at are essentially five areas, uh, quality of life, uh, leadership and how you, you know, put the programs together, uh, resource allocation, uh, the natural world. So there's the environmental part, uh, part of it. And then the fifth part is climate and resilience. So uh, after that effort, we're now rolling out our modified uh, Envision tools. So the tools we have to implement Envision are a playbook, some conversation guides, and those were fun to put together. And we've actually used them on a couple of projects to, to really drive the conversations. And then evaluation tools, how we measure uh, where we're headed on the project from a sustainability standpoint and putting all that together in a tiered implementation system. So you have three tiers. The tier one guidance was set up for four types of routine uh, uh, pipeline replacement and rehabilitation projects. So in those tier one projects, we've identified specific envision criteria that are applicable to that type of project and driving the conversations with the designers specific to their implementation. So those more routine projects, we just have some baseline things that we're going to do with Envision so we don't have to evaluate them every time. But again, then drive those discussions that this is how we're gonna adapt it to the particular project. Then tier two means that we will partner with our design professionals to scope out a full Envision analysis of all the applicable factors and then tier three adds on to tier two and that we will actually seek that Envision certification and pay the fees for verification. So uh, we just trained our internal staff on the new tools and are gonna roll it out to uh, KC Water Projects. It's also being built into the business case development for our annual CIP cycle, where we will make a preliminary determination of whether projects are tier one, tier two, or three. 
uh, as those tier two and tier three projects will require additional consultant scope and potentially costs. You know, uh, Matt, one of the things I wanted to highlight that you said, I think that this is uh, very telling is you said, you know, originally you worked with Envision then things kind of flatlined and kind of got, uh, you know, so so about it is that the new version here is you're rolling out conversation guides. And you have said this multiple times, actually, you kept saying, drive the discussions, drive the discussion. So it sounds like this conversation guide is one of those things that helps, you know, fuel uh, keeping that discussion so that doesn't become stagnant. So I, I love your, your talk on that. And I wanted to ask you here about, you're talking about that, you know, your design, when you partner with your design professionals, the consulting engineers that come in and do the design, it seems like uh, these folks, uh, it, it, it behooves them to become trained themselves in what is envisioned if they want to be useful to, to you know, you as a client. Can you talk a little about that? Oh, uh, yes. Those conversations have already happened. So as we were doing this, like I said, we do it uh, as a part of the CIP cycle. So that's where we kick off and know that we have a project. The next major, uh, major uh, hurdle to overcome is the RFQ RFP process. And so we've developed some RFQ RFP guidance for what uh, we desire to get out of the project or what we already know around uh, envision tiers and, and that kind of thing. And, and uh, yes, the successful consultants will learn very well that uh, they need to come up to speed on a more mature understanding of envision to be selected on projects. So it's actually built into our, uh, to, to our future. And we've already had our first RFQs go out uh, with that, with that uh, requirement. And that's fantastic because what you are doing is planting the seed so that these consulting firms, which also work for other, you know, folks beyond Casey Water, it's now pushing them to be in that mindset and they can then to other clients say, hey, have you heard about this Envision thing? And what you're doing is helping to spread. You are that that pebble in the water that's that's uh, making the, the rings of the water spread out there. That's fantastic. And Matt, you know, I can go on all day because you are engaged in so many things and uh, folks that know you know that, you know, you know so much stuff about this industry. You are one of the go-to people as we just talked about here, you know, five, four or five different subjects that you are an expert in. Um, and I wish I could talk to you all day about this. Uh, but at any rate, we got to bring it to a close. So I'm going to leave you with one last question for our listeners here. So Matt, it's often been said that in a crisis, there's always an opportunity. So what is one opportunity or maybe a positive outcome that you have taken away from this very negative pandemic? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I, I guess I'd say that a silver lining is that over you know, it seems like rather suddenly over the last three or four months that all of a sudden uh, good people are coming available and interested in joining Casey Water. Uh, obviously, I oversee the engineering activities and for our engineering business unit, we had a very hard time competing for entry-level engineers with our salary structure. But in the last few months, uh, we've actually landed four of the six uh, new graduates that we desired to hire that uh, have already joined us. They've actually joined right at uh, the end of last year and the first of this year. So, And then there's also some more senior uh, professionals that are coming available that have engineering experience in, in other sectors. So oil and gas, uh, electrical transmission and uh, delivery. And uh, they seem to be seeking the stability and value to society of working in the water utility sector. So I expect in the next few months, we're gonna be fully staffed. And then the next challenge will be keeping them as the economy improves. Uh, so I look forward to hooking them for life. You know, We all know how great fulfilling careers are in the water sector. And it's easy to pass that word along, especially with a year like we had last year. So 
hope we can leverage this momentum to hire you know, entry level operations and maintenance folks as well. And we're seeing some signs of that. Uh, we're, we're also getting, getting it for the, uh, you know, for the O&M folks as well. So. Well, that sounds like KC Water has become uh, the new Google in terms of the place to go work. Yeah, we'll see. So far, <laughs> so, so, far so good. Now I'm challenging everyone that we have to keep them. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's good. Good. Matt, this is fantastic. Great stuff. Uh, it's uh, really useful information here for the folks that are working in public works and city government and those working with infrastructure and funding of infrastructure. So we're going to be wrapping up here. And once again, my, my guest has been WEF past president, Matt Bond. Matt, thanks for being on the program and for taking your time to share your experiences as a water sector leader with us. Uh, thanks, Tom. It's been great to address the sector. You know, I'd like to express appreciation to WEF staff and leaders who have kept WEF not only relevant, but impactful during these times. So WEF Tech Connect, uh, kudos to you all. Uh, that was much better than I could have hoped, especially in only a couple of months to get that together. And I know that the current leadership is ready to adapt to our industry's challenges and opportunities. So if I can help in any way, let me know. Uh, I hope everyone can stay safe and we pray for a robust recovery in 2021. Stick by close by your phone, Matt, because we will be calling you. This has been Take It From The Top with your host, Tom Kunitz, asking you to keep listening to WEF's Words on Water podcasts and to our next episode of Take It From The Top. Until next time, be positive and stay negative. Words on Water. <laughs>